Hello to all you wonderful people that I've missed hearing from, that I've missed seeing, your wonderful faces. I really have missed connecting with you. You small, small group of people, but I have missed you so much. And I'm here, I'm in Georgia, near Athens, Georgia, and it has been a complete whirlwind. I am sure that we will update you kind of on those traveling adventures and settling into a new place at a different time, but that's not what this episode is for. So before I get into the episode, I realized that anytime I've done an intro to this show, I have always been kind of my target audience in my head has been people that are super critical and don't agree with me. And I thought, wow, it's such a painful way to exist. I really should be talking to mainly the people that are like, these are my people. They like, they get it. They know why I'm doing this. They know why we're doing this. They know why we're making, why we're making these videos, why we put time into this. And not to, uh, not specifically or primarily to people that are constantly just arguing with you. So I'm open, obviously, to arguments. I'm open to discussion. I like it. It refines me. I think it refines other people. But to you who have been behind me and supportive and helpful in this process. I am so thankful for you. So I realized moving from California to Georgia that every place kind of has their own issues that they're working through and dealing with. And it is kind of helpful to be in Georgia and look back at things that I was working through in California that really are not a focus here or things that people are working through in Georgia that I'm really just barely getting in, 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 um, an insight into that people in California are not really working through. And this is broadly speaking, like in California, obviously I was in the Central Coast and then in Georgia, I'm in a, you know, a small, well, compared to the state in a small area and kind of North Central Georgia. So one thing that I have picked up on though, is that most anyone that I talk to in the Central Coast and I get more broad, like probably beyond that as well. Anyone that I talked to was very aware of the influence of the government and things like psychological operations and how much that we were being told from the media was really accurate or not. And people were really hyper aware of that, I think, because we had this pressure, like we had to start making decisions about what we were going to submit to and what we weren't going to submit to, how long were were we gonna wear the masks, who was gonna get, you know, the injection, who wasn't. I mean, this was a topic that we talked about a lot. I mean, it was like part of our Sunday school (laughs) discussion often. What were we gonna put our foot down on? And that, I don't, it hasn't really, I've, I've noticed people that I've met, if I bring something like that up, it, there's no like light bulb that goes on, it doesn't really click because they haven't experienced the same governmental pressure that is in California. So I've, I've just realized like, oh, I kind of had this expectation that I would, you know, move here and everyone was, I know this is naive, but everyone was going to be on the same page. Like we would get it. And it's like, oh, wait, I'm just going to a place that hasn't necessarily experienced this yet. And they've experienced other things. They have other 
things that they've worked through that I have not worked through yet. I will say that I had a warmer reception here than I think I've ever gotten in my life. So it is true that I really felt this Southern warmness, this like um, warm bloodedness. When I came, people were very friendly. And the more I get to know people, the more I realize that everyone is just a person. I mean, wonderful, made in God's image, but my anthropology has not changed at all. People are people, all still in need of Christ, all still in need of a savior. And everyone reflects and shows God's image a little bit differently. So that's just a little bit of insight of what it's looked like coming here. And so with this kind of new season of the Blind Spot podcast, I and Phil, Phil and I are going to really be focusing on probably some more of the issues that we see are necessary to be explored in this location. It will apply probably to everybody because everyone has an opinion on a lot of these topics that we've kind of listed out, but it's really probably going to hit the hardest in our specific area. So the next episode is going to be about education and how Christians should educate their kids. How much freedom do we have? Do we have very little freedom because of the options that are available? Do we have a lot of freedom in terms of our, you know, it's really just based on conviction? Or should there be a more serious conversation about how we as Christians collectively, as the body of Christ, should think about how we are educating our kids? And I really hope that you listen to that. I really hope that you share it with people because it has been on our minds and hearts for the last couple years. And I think now that we've been a part of starting a new school, starting a new classical Christian program, hybrid program, it has just kind of put meat onto the bones of our argument. And it's going to be really fun because we're going to have a two-part episode, one part just talking about what the Bible says about education and how to think about it properly as a Christian. And then the next part, we're going to have our the headmaster of our school on to discuss what the specific type of um, education program is that we're affiliated with. And so I'm, I'm pumped for that. And then we have some other topics that are, will be coming up that I'm excited for. But for this episode, you will see my interview with Katie Faust, who is the co-author of the book, Them Before Us. It's about the children's rights movement. And in her perspective, where we are with children's rights, and I'll explain that in just a second, but where we are with children's rights is basically where the pro-life movement was right after Roe was established in 1973. So she thinks we're really in the infancy of the children's rights movement. And so if you're kind of confused, like, what does she mean by children's rights? Think surrogacy, think adoption, think IVF, think all of these different topics in which it's very parent-centric, not child-centric. We're always arguing from the parent's perspective or potential uh, perspective, parent's perspective. And very rarely, except for really in the case of adoption, are we looking at the child's perspective. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure that you will. Please share it with your friends. I'm going to say this moving forward. Give the video a thumbs up. 
subscribe to the channel. I'm really excited about more people hearing about this and sharing it with others because we need to be behind this movement. So without further ado, here is the interview. Welcome to our guest, Katie Faust. She is the founder of Them Before Us and co-writer of the book, which I have right here, Them Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. She's also a wife, um, a mother of four, adoptive parent, fluent in Mandarin, which I got some background on that. So um, Katie, I asked actually my husband, I said, okay, what I do um, when I ask people their first question, I you know ask them to give us their background and why they wrote this book or why they started this movement. And I said, "Do you think that's good to you know to open up this interview?" He said, "Well, the book is called Them Before Us, so she probably would rather talk about them, you know, who them is, and that is probably going to be the main focus of this discussion. And I think we both want that. We both want to highlight that. So." Um, what is, what is your book address? Like, what is the problem in a nutshell? Give us like for the normal average American like me or someone that, you know, you meet in a grocery store who's like, you know, what's the big deal about gay marriage or about IVF or about surrogacy? What would you tell them? Yeah. So the book is Them Before Us. The movement is Them Before Us because the idea is we need to put them, the children, before us, the adults. And that is probably true in pretty much every theater of society these days. Um, but we are talking specifically about family structure, about any conversation that has to do with marriage, family, parenthood. That encompasses a lot of the cultural changes that are taking place in um, society today in terms of uh, concepts of modern families. That has to that sort of encompasses sort of the technological changes that are taking place in the reproductive technology world, which, um, you know, abortion and reproductive technologies in, in essence are kind of two sides of the same child commodifying coin that has to do with the legal challenges, the legal changes that we're seeing when it has to do with parenthood laws, how we define parenthood, how we define marriage, whether or not we permit no fault divorce, um, whether or not we legalize gay marriage, whether or not we green light polygamy, all of these things. If you can think of a conversation that has to do with marriage and family, we believe that children's rights should be prioritized above adult desires. And so we talk, we spend the first chapter of the book talking about children's rights. And a lot of people on the conservative side of the aisle are aware of um, and defend children's fundamental right to life. And that's important and critical. And it is the primary child right. It's the primary human right is the right to life. But a lot of people are not aware that children have rights on this side of the womb as well. And the primary right, once you defend their right to life, is children have a right to be known and loved by the two people responsible for their existence. Um, and then we spend quite a bit of time outlining why it is that that natural right is so powerful. Um, and we, we play a little game in the beginning of the book where we kind of talk about why Democrats should care about children's rights. And we list a lot of the social ills that we're facing today as a as a nation, whether it's high homelessness, um, high incarceration rates, teen dropouts, teen pregnancy, teen suicide, um, obesity, teen po child poverty. Like I often say to my liberal friends, if you could just solve one of these, 
which one would you solve? Like just wave a magic wand and let it be gone. And I'll get a variety of answers from people that have a lot of different, you know, levels of, of bleeding heart for different causes. And then I'll say, if you could do one thing that would decimate, like why drop down to a 10th, pretty much everything that I just mentioned, would you do it? Especially if it was really cheap. And they're like, of course I would do that. And the answer is defending children's rights to their mother and father is that D, all of the above answer, because 90% of kids that are homeless on the street were fatherless. 67% of kids who commit suicide are fatherless. 67% of teen pregnancies come from fatherless homes. 70 to 85% of kids that are in institutions for, for run-ins with the police were fatherless. Like every major social ill we are facing today has something in common. That demographic is overrepresented by fatherless children. And then I turn to my Republican friends and I'm like, do you want small government? You want low taxes? you want personal responsibility, then you need to put them before us. You need to prioritize children's right to their mother and father because you will never ever get a small government unless you have big marriage. Not big marriage in terms of whatever fulfills the adults, but the big marriage that unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. So children have this fundamental right. It is the most powerful right on this side of the womb. It can solve literally all of society's problems. Why? because there is something distinct about these two people responsible for making the child. And we spell that out in chapters two and three. What it does when you can defend this fundamental right is number one, it grants children statistically the two adults who are the safest, most protective of, most invested in, and most connected to kids. Two, it grants children their biological identity. Kids long to know, who am I? Every kid's asking the question, who am I? It's very hard to know who am I when you don't know whose am I. And that's a huge aspect of why donor-conceived children, children conceived through sperm and egg donation suffer, for example. And then third, if you can defend children's right to their mother and father, you also get the perfect gender balance in the home every time, which maximizes child development and satisfies a child's longing to be loved by a male and female parent. So that's the first three chapters of the book in a nutshell. Children have a right to their mother and father. Defending this right fixes pretty much every issue we're facing today. The reason this right is so powerful is because of safety, identity, and maximizing child development. And there is no way around this. You will never be able to explain this away. You'll never be able to legislate it away. You'll never be able to create some kind of technology that changes what children are and what they need. This is simply the fundamentals of the child. We either respect or we will disregard it. Right. So I first learned about you and this book um, during the time, I think, that Dave Rubin and his partner, I think I think I remember you commenting on this, and his partner um, decided that they were going to buy, or, I don't know, uh, rent the wombs of two surrogates because mm -hmm. Dave wanted a biological connection with one kid. And I think the other guy is also Dave wanted right. a biological connection with that kid. And originally Dave had asked his sister if she would be the, so, you know, I, I don't know. And she had said no, cause she would, was kind of uncomfortable and we know why that you would be uncomfortable. But anyway, I saw you respond to that and I, and I, then I looked and saw that your book and I bought it right away, but we ha were moving. And so I didn't get to contact you, but 
I remember thinking, oh, okay, this is the first time that I had seen this from the children's perspective. Um, everyone that was responding, not everyone, a lot of people that were responding, even a lot of conservatives that were responding to Dave Rubin's choice were, were saying stuff like, um, you're going to be a great dad. Um, I'm sure you're going to be great parents. Um, even I'm happy for you. Or, and, and other conservatives, maybe like Matt Walsh, who were saying things like, no, this is not a good thing. We sh this should not be happening. People's response were, we can't legislate morality, which, which mm -hmm. ignores the fact that all legislation is moral yeah. in nature, right. but yeah. uh, we can't legislate morality or aren't you more libertarian? Shouldn't we allow people to do what they're going to do? Why does that type of argumentation fall flat? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great springboard um, because I think that a lot of the conservative movement has really morphed into libertarianism, right? Which is just small government, get your hands out of my life. Fine. Until you're trampling on somebody else's rights. And that actually is what the redefinition of marriage and family always does. When you look at every one of the issues that we address in our book, the definition of marriage, whether or not to permit no fault divorce, whether or not to promote same sex parenting, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, even adoption, adult-centric adoption, polygamy, cohabitation, open non-monogamy. Um, I mean, all of those issues really, what they do is they elevate adult desire, adult sexual desire, adult feelings, adult sexual identity. They elevate that to the highest good. In fact, a lot of times they call that a right, right? I have a right to marry. I have a right to a child. I have a right to orient my family around this identification or this feeling that I have. And the problem is that if you elevate adult desire, whether or not you call it a right in the area of sex and marriage, it will run afoul of children's actual right, children's actual right to their mother and father. Because sex is connected to children and because marriage is primarily about caring for the product of a sexual union, when you get questions about sex or marriage or family wrong, it is going to be the child who sacrifices. In all of these different areas that we have talked about, for, let's take, for example, Dave and David, right? They would be great fathers. As far as I know, both of them would be good dads. The problem is that for them to create a family that is centered around their romantic desires, which is what they're doing, right? They have romantic connections with two men, if they're going to create a family that elevates adult sexual desires to the highest good, it requires that children lose their fundamental rights. And that's an injustice. So there's times where children lose a mother or father to tragedy. And what happens? All of us mourn, right? We throw ashes on our head. We tear our clothing. We walk around in sackcloth. We like are just gutted by the fact that this kid's parent died. That is the proper response to mother or father loss. Mm -hmm. These days, what we're doing, because we are elevating adult desire in all of these conversations, no-fault divorce conversations, right? Shacking up before you are married conversations. Oh, I, I mean, I follow, I follow like all of the crazy hashtags. Like I follow all the stories of the non-monogamy and the polyamory and all of that, right? All of these stories are always about adults getting what they want at the expense of children having their fundamental right to be known and loved by both their mother and father every day in a stable household, right? It's those kids that have to sacrifice for it. So look, watch, watch the shows, watch the trending news, look at the personal stories in your life. It is the adult desires, right? That 
tend to have the obsessive focus in all of these conversations. And it's always the kids that just have to stick it. It's always yeah. the kids that just have to deal with it. And they do so under these monikers, like the kids will be fine, right? Or the kids will be happy if the adults are happy or love makes a family. Or we wouldn't, you know, kids don't want to be in a marriage, you know, where their parents are so unhappy. And those are lies, right? There are convenient lies to, in essence, give the adults a get out of jail free pass and make the kids shoulder a load that the adults are unwilling to shoulder themselves. So you've drawn a really clear distinction here and in the book between marriage and children, which to me seems obvious. However, recently I was, I don't know if you saw it, but I was watching the interview with Matt Walsh and Joe Rogan and Rogan was pushing him on this saying, well, what if a family, you know, what if a couple doesn't want to start a family? What if, so how do we know that that children are connected to marriage. Where do we see that? Like you bring up some Supreme Court cases, we bring up different state cases. How 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 are how is it so so directly tied children and yeah. marriage? Well, it's kind of like the children marriage has nothing to do with children except when it has everything to do with children, and we're glad it does. That's kind of the way the argument goes, right? Because I mean, I'm always like, well, children need marriage, right? Marriage actually, the reason the state is interested in marriage is because the state has an interest in children. Those are not my words. Those are the words of the Congress, the bipartisan Congress that passed the Defense for Mar Defense of Marriage Act back in 1996. That is what they said. They didn't say government has an interest in marriage because we really want to validate the emotional bonds of adults. They said government has an interest in marriage because it has an interest in children. Maybe adults have other interests. They do. But the reason why society has an interest in marriage at all is because that union produces these vulnerable humans that deserve protection. And we have been studying family structure long enough to know the conditions that will lead or stack the deck in favor of child thriving. And it is mother's love, father's love and stability. The only place a child is going to get all three is in man, woman, lifelong marriage. Any other variation of that it does not mean kids are doomed, but any other variation increases risk for all the things I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, right? Increases, well, just, just take no-fault divorce, for example, right? When there's an amicable divorce, right, where there's the parents fall out of love, they decide to have two different households, the kids split their homes, they split their lives, there's oftentimes new partners coming in and out of the parents' home, right? And that's something that's been normal for the last couple decades of this country. We have studied the impact on those kids. Very likely kids who still have some contact with mom and some contact with dad, complete instability because there is so much change happening in the adult's world. Um, but we can measure. Those kids have decreased physical health. They have decreased emotional health. Oftentimes their grades tank. Oftentimes their anxiety goes up. They are more likely to have long-term chronic illnesses, right? There is something about breaking that mother-father stability bond that is detrimental to kids. And that's the most, that's the very benign no-fault divorce situation, right? Where nobody was screaming and nobody was yelling and nobody was being abused. It's just, we decided I need to, I need to live for myself. You know, I just need to do the right thing for myself right now. But the right thing for yourself means the kid does not get what they need and deserve. So um, all that to say, like, we know that, so how do, how do we know that marriage goes with children? Well, I'll tell you what, as soon as we redefined marriage, parenthood was redefined as well. These two things have always gone together, both in culture and in law, right? So what we saw in 2015 was the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage through the Obergefell decision. Within two years, 
they had redefined parenthood in a variety of different ways, um, either on a state level by saying that um, you can have parenthood conferred on you if you intend to parent a child versus being biologically related or being an adoptive parent. We saw them say that two women could put their name on a birth certificate for a child um, if they had were able to purchase the sperm. Um, for that child, they could legally erase the father on the day the child is born because that's what their marriage demanded. And so, like I said, you know, marriage has nothing to do with kids when you don't want it to. But once you're married and want kids, it has everything to do with kids. And the reality is marriage and children have always gone together and everybody knows it. Right. I remember having this conversation a few years ago with one of my friends who had a stepdaughter and her husband and ex-wife, they were all kind of friends together. Mm -hmm. And I thought we had a relationship that we could kind of talk candidly because I'd known her for so long, maybe 20 something years. And I had said, I was actually talking about gay marriage with her and saying, do you think that this has an impact on kids if they have, you know, just two dads or two moms? We see so much happen with um, fatherless children, as you had mentioned at the beginning, the outcomes of a, a child raised in a fatherless home, particularly little boys um, mm -hmm. raised in a fatherless home. And um, she wasn't super um, open to that conversation and it really bothered her. And I think one of her arguments was if, again, like you said, if the child is loved, like there is no real distinction. Like uh, she was saying, I don't parent different. I don't, like, I don't mother. I parent my, my husband fathers, uh, or sorry, not fathers. He parents, he doesn't father, you know, we both can play roles. And I said, well, why do you think it's important to have just, is it important just to have two people? You know? Yeah. I think it's important to have two people. She said, because, you know, one's gone, the other one can pick up, but there really wasn't any, a specific gender role, you know, within parenting. So what is, I'm assuming you've heard that a lot. What is your main response to that? A hundred percent all the time, right? That like, well, kids don't need a male parent and a female parent. Like, why do you care what's between people's legs? I mean, they just need adults that love them. And the answer is the kids care. The kids care that they're being parented by a man and a woman. First of all, because, well, first of all, we've been studying parenting for decades. And many sociologists would say so different are the ways that men and women relate to children that there is no such thing as parenting. There is only mothering and there is fathering. Women mother. It is just what they do. Men father. It's just what they do. Women don't mother. Men don't father. There is no switch that you can flip on. You know, no matter how much David Janet, Dave Rubin's husband, reads books or takes his shirt off and puts a baby on his chest, no matter how much milk they purchase from women to, mm -hmm. you know, feed them through a bottle and make eye to eye contact with the child. He will never mother the child. He will yeah. not respond to the baby the way a woman responds to a baby because our bodies are different. Our brains are different. Our hormones are different. The way that we, ins our eyes are different. Our ears are different. The way that we respond to a child's pride, women, have a much lower tolerance for babies crying. We respond more quickly to babies crying. That is not something that you learn. It's not a switch you flip on. It's something about being a woman that we hear a baby crying and we are up out of our chair really fast. That's just how it goes. we live across the street from a pool. Sometimes I hear a baby crying across mm. and I'm like, get the baby, get <laughs> right? There's something about me going, don't let the baby cry. Mm -hmm. And men are good men 
good fathers. They're like, here's a Cheerio baby. You're going to be okay. You know, there's just a different response. So this idea that a man can be a good mommy is a sociological lie. It is untrue. Further, children want a mom and dad. A lot of what we do at Them Before Us is we catalog the stories of kids who have lost their mom or dad, kids that had two moms, two dads, single mother by choice. We catalog the stories of kids of no-fault divorce who also went through transitions, whether it's a rotating cast of characters in one of their parents' lives. Um, we catalog the stories of kids that were created through third-party reproduction, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy. And here's something that is true. Children long to be loved by a man and they long to be loved by a woman. And if they are in a scenario where one of those roles, the one of those genders are missing, they create it, right? And I think a lot of us probably can look back on children of single parents that we might've known And we see this father hunger in them, that they desperately long to be loved by a man because they're made to be loved by a man. Um, It is true for children that have two mothers. Two mothers, 10 mothers cannot be a father. They cannot give the child the father love that the child craves. We at Them Before Us call that father hunger, right? They are hungering for for a father when there is no mom. Children hunger for a mom. Sometimes people will send you screenshots of like, chat groups of gay dads and it'll be fascinating because they're like oh my kid did it today you know my daughter my four-year-old walked up to a teacher and said mommy mommy will you be my mommy and they're like i don't know where she's getting this she's literally surrounded by only men and nobody's ever told her she should have a mommy there is just something in children that long to be loved by a mom and long to be loved by a dad so we share a lot of their stories in the book um probably 30 different stories of kids with two moms or two dads who talk about how it did not matter that they had just two parents. It didn't matter that they were parented. They wanted to be mothered and they wanted to be fathered. Why? Because they are human children. And that is what human children want. Right. It, the story that you're talking about of the other day, what's his, I don't know his, what's his last name? The other Dave. Oh, David Janet. Yeah. Janet. Okay. So they say they're going to do skin to skin and use breast milk, but they're just mimicking. They're trying to mimic a woman. It's so interesting because they don't deny the fact that babies need that, but they're trying to separate it from, from being female as if what being female is, is just these certain peripheral aspects or kind of superficial aspects that you can extract from the woman. Um, So you had brought up a, go ahead. In that story, I counted like, well, Let's see how many women it takes for them to get the family that they want, right? Mm. One egg donor, which is really the biological mother who has sold her children to them. Right. Two different women who are renting their womb. Um, Countless women. I don't know how many. Countless women who are selling their breast milk. They mentioned the grandmothers, several night nannies that were going to be in the picture, right? And so- You've got, and I mean, I'm assuming you're, they're buying breast milk from a dozen women, right? I used yeah. to, I pumped breast milk for a friend of mine who had twins and it was to have freezers full. I mean, you, that's going to take oh, a yeah. Oh yeah. Right. They need so many women to create a motherless child. Um, and it's interesting, you know, what you pointed out is both of them obviously wanted, and if you listen to his interview with Jordan Peterson, they're mm-hmm. talking about how sweet and how precious it is to see your reflection in your child. Like they really wanted a genetic connection with their, they didn't want to adopt. 
because right. they wanted a biological connection with their kids. And it just blows me away that they think, well, this is so important to me. And they dismiss the fact that they are cutting out a biological parent. Right. Somebody that the child would love to look at and say, I look like them. She's like me. I get that from her, right? They right. are literally saying, my desire for a biological connection overrides your right to be biologically connected to your mother. It is, right. that is why our whole movement is them before us, the kids before us, because our whole conversation right now is us before them. And right. that is a great example of an us before them mentality. And the, just a side note, but the fact that Jordan Peterson did not think to respond in that manner is, I mean, he is so intelligent. There is no way you just overlooked that. I, I mean, anyway, that was really interesting to me. But you, um, there is one story that you had in here, one, one of the many stories that I had uh, written down, and I wanted to read it. Um, it says, my formative years were almost entirely devoid of women. Um, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a mother until I watched The Lamb Before Time at school. My five-year-old brain could not understand why I didn't have the mom that I suddenly desperately wanted. I felt the loss. I felt the hole. As I grew, I tried to fill that hole with aunts, my dad's lesbian friends, and teachers. I remember asking my first grade teacher if I could call her mom. I asked that question of any woman who showed me any amount of love and affection. It was instinctive. I craved a mother's love even though I was well-loved by my two gay dads. And I think that second half of the book, the first half isn't as gut-wrenching, I think, as the last half of the book. I, w I was having a hard time finishing it just because I was overwhelmed by the fact that I had not advocated for children as and the pain and the hurt that is happening, and most of it happening behind closed doors because they don't feel like they have the freedom, the space, or the right to mention this to either their parents or mention it to the world because they are castigated as being ungrateful or that they shouldn't be um, shaming their parents who wanted them so much or who spent so much money for them. But a lot of these kids, or at least one of them that I was reading about in here, it said, I feel artificial. I feel not real. Like I was made outside and then put into someone. And I long to see myself in my mom or my dad. So many of them talk about, I saw my biological mom or my family for the first time. And I realized why I had the humor I did, like my mannerisms, all of a sudden I felt like a whole person. And, um, again, it just, <laughs> so much of our culture is missing that conversation. Now, when you talk to people about this and you bring this to their attention, do you see light bulbs go off or are there still a lot of even friends that you think are acting in good faith, are there st still a lot of, well, I don't think that's it as important. What, what are people's responses? The people who are willing to genuinely engage with the ideas, listen to the stories, the ones who, the ones who get their honest questions answered, right? It does. This is, we are with this movement, right? I would say where the pro-life movement was after Roe versus Wade, we are at the very beginning when people are okay. just starting to think about a lot of these ideas for the first time. And many people have never gotten good answers to a lot of these objections, right? A lot of the, uh, the answers to, well, why are you against gay marriage is because the Bible says so, right? Mm -hmm. Or, well, 
isn't this just like interracial marriage? Like if you don't support gay marriage, it's not the same thing as opposing interracial marriage. And people have never gotten good answers to that kind of mm-hmm. thing or saying, oh, well, you think kids need moms and dads? <laughs> Is that why you're making such a big deal about no fault divorce? And they didn't make a big deal about no fault divorce and they should have. And so, so much of this is just presenting for often for the first time, a secular, holistic, child centric view of all of these marriage and family issues. And for the people that are willing to engage that argument, you can't fight against it. Mm -hmm. The only thing that could, um, the only possible objection is ideological and it is an ideological objection that has existed for about five minutes. Historically speaking, um, it's something that goes against natural law. It goes against the mountains of social science that we have on the importance of mothers, the importance of fathers, the role that biology plays in marriage or in parenting. Um, it goes against the five major religions of the world. It goes against common sense. It goes against, the stories of kids, like when you honestly pull back the curtain and let kids tell the truth, usually because they've got a pseudonym, it goes against the stories of kids. It goes against what we all know to be true from our own childhood, right? Like if somebody had a great mom and dad and you say, okay, well, your argument is basically saying that you could just swap in any adults for that mom and dad and no difference in your development and your identity, which one would you swap out? Your mom or your dad? Like which one? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, well, you can't right? I'd be Mm -hmm. a different person. I would have a loss. I would have a wound. Right. And for the people that had a garbage mom or dad, because I hear a lot of those objections, I'd say, okay. Cause they're like, well, I had a garbage mom and dad. I wish that I had been raised by two loving gay people. And I'd say, okay, what if your mom and dad both did hard things so that they loved you and gave you the maternal love, paternal love and stability that you do? What if you had both your mom and dad? What if they let go of the alcoholism or went to counseling and figured out their anger problems. And both of them turned towards you and each other and gave you love and affection every day of your life. Would you take that deal? And they can't even say yes, because Mm. they're so choked up at the possibility of being loved by the two people that they desperately wish had loved them. So there is no argument to be made against this. This is this whole argument of children having a right to their mother and father, deserving, needing, and having the best outcomes when they're raised by their mother and father. Everything is against you if you want to argue against that. Every single thing. The best social science, natural law, common sense of five major religions, your own experience. The only thing people have is ideology. And that is very powerful, right? It's, it functions as a god in the life of many people. So they will defend it at any costs, but not logically. They won't be able to defend it logically. Yeah. So I have last two little, we'll see how short they are, but last two little questions for you. Um, One, before you kind of give us your, what you implore us to do, what can we do? How can we part of this? Is I remember, I don't know if you liked this video or retweeted it something. I found it on your Twitter. And, and I don't even remember who it was by, but it was a video about a guy speaking about natural law. Cause that was pretty much like the first part of your book is talking about what, what rights are, or sorry, what natural rights are. And, um, he said, 
that natural rights, like to say that natural rights are just in the ether is as theological as saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. So would you say that most people, the reason that we would start with talking to people about human rights or about, you know, them before us is because we have that common fabric of understanding, but that it still rests on the authority of, you know, God's law, like that we really are taking that from in essence, from scripture, from God? So um, you can argue, like I said, you can argue for children's rights from a variety of perspectives. The book begins with natural law. It goes on to reinforce that with social science. You can argue from your own experience. Um, you can argue from common sense. Um, you can argue from divine law, 100%, <laughs> right? In fact, I have a lot of patience for people that disagree with me unless you're a Christian. If you're a Christian and you are bending God's word or ignoring God's word so that you can go with the social flow and get on board with all of these like trendy modern families, probably in the name of love. Yeah. That is millstone around your neck territory, people. Yeah. You are supposed right. to be defending the fatherless, right? So I can defend, I can defend this cause using scripture. I can do it using God's word. But God's word is not the universal authority for non-believers. God's world is the universal authority for God's, for non-believers. And so that is why we use natural law, social science, mm -hmm. and the stories of kids, because those are authorities that they have to recognize, that they should recognize and respond to, right? So these two things are not going to be in conflict, right? God's word and God's world have the same author. And so they perfectly mm. complement one another. But I think tactically, Christians mm. need to become experts and are going from a natural law, social science perspective, because that is the authority under which everybody has to bow. Yeah. So what is our, where, where are we now? Like what at this moment, we're basically like post row being established, you know, that that's where you see, I guess, the movement of them before us. We're in it's our infancy. We're just beginning to wake up. We're just beginning to kind of galvanize our resources. Mm -hmm. So what is the, I guess, role? Where are some roles that um, open roles that need to be filled? Where can people like me, you know, be a part of this? Yeah. The number one thing that I tell everybody they need to do first is become an expert. There's okay. very few people who Think about these things from the child's perspective, understand that children have a right to the mother and father, understand the importance of children's rights to their mother and father, understand how to then take that template and apply it to all these conversations we're having about marriage and family. The book is, the whole point of the book is to make you an expert. Um, we have a gazillion footnotes, right, that link to other resources, other studies, full stories to the, of the expert excerpts that we share. You will walk away from that being bulletproof in terms of objections that people are going to bring to you about what about this? What about this? Right. Um, we've been doing this long enough to know what kind of objections you're going to get. And we've put it in there for you. So first you need to become an expert. Um, I would say go to our website, thenbeforeus.com and subscribe and stay connected on all the things we have going on. We've got a lot. Next year is going to be a crazy big year. Really great stuff coming. Um, coming up. We, this needs to be a global movement. 
So we've got a lot of people overseas that are figuring out how to get on board, translate our content. Um, I think one of the best things, we've got a study guide for the book. So if you want to just bring in four or five friends or 10 friends into your living room, we've got a really easy free PDF study guide for you to just talk through. If Once you become an expert, make five other experts. Right. Um, I think one of the biggest things, though, that we're going to need to do is take these truths into art and literature, right? Like it is so compelling to hear these truths through music or through poetry or in a documentary or um, in stories. A story. Yeah, short stories. Yeah. yeah. Like you artists out there, like become an expert and then figure out where you can weave these truths because that is honestly where so much of the persuasive work is going to take place. So we are going to have a training program next year in cooperation with some video curriculum that we're making. And what we're going to do at the end of that training is in essence say, we're going to do what we can to make you an expert and then figure out what you're going to do with this. Where did your gifts and your passions intersect with this cause? Uh, so like I said, there's a lot, there's a lot happening next year. So um, stay connected to us, but become an expert first and foremost. Um, and the book is the best way to do that. Yes. And as a reminder, everyone, then before us, why we need a global children's right movement. Katie Faust and Stacey Manning, who's really like the creative writer, witty lady, right? Oh, <laughs> That's what I remember. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like we're writing our second book right now. Um, and she, the shackles are off. Like for this <laughs> book, it was lots of research. We had to be very, very careful about the wording. We're trying to distill a 20 page study down into two sentences. So it was tons of precision. This one, I just want to say, she is out of control. She is just, <laughs> she is so, she's so funny. She's so witty. She's got like, you know, we had like 10 footnotes per chap, per, per yeah. page on that book. about yeah. studies and so Her 10 footnotes are just like comical commentary this whole way through. So anyway, awesome. that's all happening too. I love it. Okay. Where can people follow you? Um, I'm on Twitter the most at advo mm -hmm. underscore Katie, A-A-D-V-O underscore K-A-T-Y. I've got a Facebook page. Them Before Us has an Instagram page. Um, I have an Instagram too, but I'm not really on there very much. Um, <laughs> so you, we're on all the platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you'll find us, Them Before yeah. Us. There's not a lot of others out there. Yeah, yes. And I would be remiss if I didn't um, mention our plaid. And this was not planned. It was planned by the Lord, but not planned by us. <laughs> yeah, what do you need to do to get in on this movement? Go I with the get long plaid. cabin, right? Merch. Yeah. Yep. Uh -huh. And preferably one with pockets at the side. But, you know, mm. we could do pockets in the front, too. Well, I an area, area where I can grow is side pockets on my plaid. Yeah. <laughs> oversized. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining me for your time, for all the work that you're doing, for the books you're writing. I mean, I've already, I've heard from several people that book writing is like the hardest thing to do. So God bless you. You're doing the Lord's work and uh, we hope to speak to you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. I hope that was an encouragement to you. I hope that you put a lot more effort and time into seeing how you can be a part of the children's rights movement, a very godly movement to be behind. Make sure to join us next time for our episodes on education. Can't wait to see you then. Bye.